Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 336. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 336 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, mixer Val Garay. Val has had an incredible career working with people like Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor, Kenny Rogers, Ringo Starr, Bonnie Raitt, Neil Diamond, uh, Dolly Parton, Pablo Cruz, Queensryche, Santana, and numerous others. And in 1982, he shared a Grammy Award for Record of the Year uh, with Kim Carnes for Betty Davis Eyes. Now, if you're of a certain age, like me, you vividly remember that song, the video, and that song came out when I was a, a, a mere lad in the MTV generation. And that, uh, yeah, I can hear it in my head right now, but I, I promise you, I'm not going to sing it for you. <laughs> We catch up with Val at his home in Los Angeles, and I think you're going to enjoy that. So, Val Garay, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about getting back out there in person. While it is rare for me to play drums these days, I have joined forces with Cliff Truesdale, who composed the WCA theme song to record a Devo tribute record. Being that Cliff and I are of a rock mindset, ours will be guitars, bass, and drums driven. So what do you do when you're an engineer who needs to record yourself playing drums? Well, in my case, I headed out to East Bay Recorders in Oakland, California to join my friend and former WCA guest Michael Rosen in the studio so he could engineer and I could focus on playing. Michael has a great space located in the Soundwave Complex in Oakland, and being that he has a history of recording bands like Rancid, Papa Roach, and Tesla, I figured, who better to record me than Michael? It it felt incredible to not only play, which I haven't done in over four years, but the thing that sealed the deal for me was walking over to the main rehearsal building and hearing the sounds of music resonate through the air. The sounds, smells, and vibe of a rehearsal space can be offensive to some, But to me, it warmed my heart and brought back so many memories of my past. What a thrill to get out and see people, make some music, record, and yes, drink coffee with a friend, in this case, Michael. I came home having completed six songs worth of drum tracks in a little over four hours. Michael did a fantastic job, and now I get to mix a super fun project. Both of us got vaccinated and felt super comfortable ditching our masks. And I know the topic of vaccination is a touchy one for many, I do want to encourage you to get out there to record in person again, so please consider getting vaccinated so we can all reach herd immunity and ditch these masks permanently. The thrill I got yesterday reminded me of what I love about the art of recording, music, and friendship. It's so much a part of my DNA that I had forgotten about it. Whether it's getting back out on the film set, getting back in the studio, or whatever it is you do in the world of audio, I would love to see you all get back out there and get back on the horses, they say. So there's not much to this rant. I just wanted to share my experience since it was so good and brought so much enjoyment back into my life. I would love to see the rest of you enjoy that same thing too. I will let you know when our Devo tribute record is done so you can check it out. But for now, that's my rant. Thanks for listening. 
Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Val Garay here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Val, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you here. Frank Filippetti was singing your praises in my recent episode with him, and he just randomly started talking about you. And I said, well, strangely enough, he's coming on the show. So I'm, gl <laughs> I'm glad that your, that your wife reached out and we could make this happen. Yeah, me too. You know, uh, Frank Villapetti, interesting story, because he worked with James after I did, and, you know, he did some great records with James because he's a great engineer, but he's the only guy that has ever mixed one of my productions, and the reason was it was a Neil Diamond record that I did, and it was the single, and they wanted to put it out, and I was in England recording and didn't have the time to come back and mix it, so they had Frank do it. You guys obviously have some kind of a connection there. And he has great respect for you. So. Yeah. 
Well, let's let's talk about you. Okay. Let's start at the beginning now. You were born in San Francisco, 1942. Is that correct? That's a fact. Tell me about your upbringing in San Francisco and what that was like. Well, interesting. I can say that for sure. My father was a fairly famous singer, actor, who owned the biggest nightclub in San Francisco called the Copacabana on Fisherman's Wharf in the 40s, where everybody from Humphrey Bogart and Max Baer and you name it came through and hung out. And it was open from 1942 to 46, I believe. And my dad was also probably the most prominent entertainer in San Francisco. In fact, the day he died, well, for 30 years, he was in Herb Cain's column. But the day he died, Herb Cain did this whole thing on my father. And Gavin Newsom declared Father's Day, I don't remember the year, maybe 10 years ago, the Father's Day, Joaquin Garay Day in San Francisco. So he has a very big history in the city. And my mother and father were divorced when I was about three years old. So we moved down the peninsula to Burlingame Hillsboro, where I actually really grew up in Burlingame and Hillsboro, and uh, you know went to Burlingame High School and then Stanford. And it's interesting because my dad was so well known in the Bay Area that like if he sent me a check for my birthday, I'd go to the bank down in, in, in Burlingame to cash it in the woman to go, oh my God, do you know him? <laughs> I'm uh, like, yeah, it's my yes, father. Yes, I do. <laughs> or, you know, he always drove Cadillacs, which is funny, but he'd come pick us up at school from junior high school and Cadillac convertible and everybody would be oohing and on, you know. So it was kind of interesting in that respect, although I didn't see my father a lot because he was always on the road. So I saw him pretty much, you know, Christmas, New Year's, Easter, that kind of stuff. And we'd all go skiing in Lake Tahoe. And that's about the, the kind of time I spent with my father. But growing up, it was that part of it was interesting, you know. And I had no aspirations whatsoever to be in the entertainment business. And he was always saying to everyone, you know, when he would go anywhere and he was the star and they'd all go, well, what's your son going to do? And he'd go, he's going to be a doctor. <laughs> so that's kind of how I was predetermined to go to Stanford School of Medicine, which in my second year of grad school, I dropped out because I got in a band and that's really the only way you could get laid in the music. Music and being in a band in the 60s. So it was a lot better than lab classes at seven in the morning. So the Copacabana, uh, when we say the Copacabana is. Our- okay, there was two in the United States the one in New York that Jules Padel owned, and the one in Fisherman's Wharf my father owned. Okay. Was before, I believe, the one in New York. But my father is Latin. He was born in Mexico, where Spanish descent. My grandfather was born in Spain. And that was a very popular name in the 40s in the Copacabana. If you go to the the webpage of the Museum of San Francisco and click on biographies, my father's there and it gives you the whole rundown. Well, I'll include a link in the show notes for to that for sure. Yeah. And he also starred in the third movie that Walt Disney made called The Three Caballeros. He sang all the songs in the picture and played Panchito the parrot. And interestingly enough, my brother, he was also an actor because when I was growing up, I never saw my father because he was on the road. When my brother was growing up, my father was at home all the time because it was many years later, 30 years, 20 years later. And so my father started teaching my brother how to do soft shoe and all the vaudeville stuff he learned in the 30s and 40s. And my brother became an actor at and at 14, he starred in a Disney movie called Herbie Goes Bananas with Cloris Leachman. <laughs> and now my brother's daughter, Carmina, his niece, he taught her. And so she's now the star of two TV series at 14. She's co-starring in a series called The Diary of a Future President. And then a new one that they're shooting in New Orleans right now. 
and she already had done from the time she was five years old till she was ten. She'd already done two hundred national commercials. So, and that's your niece. That's my niece, Carmina. Showbiz really runs in the family. Clearly, yeah. My sister Linda was probably one of the funniest people I ever met, and could have easily been a comedian and was a really brilliant actress. But she gave it all up and had eight kids. But she still does theater and stuff. But she would have been hysterical. I mean, she is so funny. She'd imitate my father and do a Mexican accent better than my father could. You know, it was really funny. We as kids used to tease him all the time. So you're at Stanford and you dropped out your second year of grad school. Yeah. And music found its way into your life. When did audio or recording or producing find its way into your life? Well, I started as an artist and a songwriter. It's funny because I was just looking at a webpage this morning doing my eulogy to Al Schmidt, and there was this whole page of people that had died this year. Like it was an ongoing list of bass player from War, you know, all these different people. And one of the people that just died was Al Kasha. And Al Kasha was the guy who ran April Blackwood Music, which is the first publisher I signed to as a writer. Mm. So I w was a songwriter for probably six or seven years. Then I went from there to Warner Tamerlane, and then I got signed by Lou Adler. And at the time, Lou Adler was producing the Mamas and Papas and Barry McGuire and all these, and he owned part of Dunhill Records. So that was like a big break for me. Then as I became a little more successful in that world, I, I had also played in like three other bands in the interim, and I'd gotten to the point where I was signed to Lou Adler and then to Clive Davis twice. And then I finally got to the point where it's like, there was too many emotional roller coaster times with other people in the groups. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore because it's, mm -hmm. you know, I'm depending my life on three or four other people. So the studio that I had been producing in, the guy who owned it and the engineer who ran it, one and the same famous engineer's name was Dave Hassinger. And he had done, in the 60s, he did Sam Cooke and things like that. But in the, in the Monkees, he did in the 60s. But he also did all the Rolling Stones hits in the early days. He did, you know, everybody thought they were done in England, but they were actually done at RCA Studios in Hollywood. And he did Satisfaction, Under My Thumb, 19th Nervous Breakdown, Get Off My Cloud, all, all those famous, infamous Rolling Stones hits. And then he bought a studio called The Sound Factory, which... He owned the sound factory where I was producing, and I was at a point where I, you know, one day he said to me, you know, you got a great pair of ears. Why don't you come to work for me and be an engineer? And I said, okay, I'll try that. And I went to work for him for a hundred bucks a week and started running to the corner to get sandwiches. And I got my first client about eight months later, which was a band from East LA called El Chicano, and I did a, an album with them with a single on it. We remake of Brown Eyed Girl that became a top ten hit, and then Linda Ronstadt came to work with Dave Hassinger and you know he was about 55 at the time and tired of being in the studio so every time they'd come to work with him he kind of shuffle him off to me saying he's the new kid he's hot you'd work with him and after about three weeks Peter and Linda called up Hassinger and said you can stay home we like him we're going to work with him and that was heart like a wheel and then it all just took off from there. How old were you at that time? And I was about 30 about 32. Okay and as far as your survival at that time period, were you making a decent living? I was surviving. You know, I wasn't making a killing, but I was going from project to project. I'd produced two albums for Decca Records, three albums for Decca Records, and one for Neil Bogart. And I did a couple of artists for him. I did a Johnny Tillotson record and an Evie Sands record. But nothing really big happened, but I was making a living. And, 
as a producer and I realized that I wasn't going to get any big acts unless I figured out a different way of doing it. What was the key takeaway from that time period in the, when you were first starting? Is there a key lesson in those early days that you picked up on that you thought, okay, this is how it's got to be? It was a big lesson, <laughs> interestingly enough. It's a funny story. My friend Trevor Lawrence, this is like in the beginning days of engineering, and I thought I was getting really good at the time, and it was a real wake-up call. And I was working on a project, I don't remember what it was, but my friend Trevor Lawrence called me up because he and Linda Perry had cut a single with somebody and asked me if I would mix it. Linda Perry was Richard Perry's wife at the time. Oh, this is not the Linda Perry of today. No, no. Linda Perry, Richard Perry's wife. Okay. Before the Linda Perry of today. And she was, you know, the head of a big publishing company when she was married to a fairly powerful producer at the time. And so her and Trevor Lawrence, who was a sax player, who'd done a lot of sax work with Stevie Wonder, produced this artist. And they brought me the, song, the single and asked me if I'd mix it. And I tried... I did everything I thought I could do to make it great, everything but the kitchen sink. And when we got done, they took the mix with them and left. And I got a call from Trevor that evening. And he said, listen, I didn't want to, I don't want to make you feel bad, but he said, we went and remixed this with Bill Schnee. And I went, okay. He said, do you want to hear it? And I said, sure, I'd love to hear it. So he brought it over and I was all prepared to go, oh man, that sucks. I mean, why, this guy doesn't have a clue, right? And he played it for me and it was, and it was really good. <laughs> And I said to Trevor, gee, that's great. I'm glad you did that. And then I went to Dave Hassinger, who was the engineer coup de grace of the time. I mean, he was, he was amazing. And I said, I want you to listen to this and listen to mine and listen to this. And I want you to help me dissect this and figure out what I did or what I could do to get to that level. And we spent probably six months, two nights a week in the control room from like nine o'clock till one in the morning listening to records and him putting up EQs and trying, showing me this and that. Long story short, it was the development of my sound. Wow. That's amazing that, that he would sit down and do that with you for that concentrated time period. Yeah. And then as I started becoming really successful, we both worked on an album with Donald Byrd and the Blackbirds where we were both going to mix it. And we would trade off mixes. Like I'd mix this track and he'd listen to it and go, wow, that's great. And then he'd mix this track and it was like a mix off. And we mixed that whole album, which had a big hit called Walking in Rhythm. But he was a, a, an amazing engineer. Amazing. Quite a mentor, I would say. Oh, well, all the kids that I taught, Nico, and there's a whole list of them, including Alex, who's behind me. Who's, where did Alex go? He's sitting over there. <laughs> Alex is the latest, but... All the ones that I taught are all successful. And Nico, who, he's like my kid because I, I hired him when he was 17 and he worked for me for like eight years at Record One. And he's very successful now. And, and you know, I talked to him yesterday because of Al dying and everything. And he was yeah. really close with Alan. They used to call <laughs> the Sound Factory the Soma College of Musical Knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, he worked there and Richard Bosworth worked there and, and Greg Ladani was my assistant who I trained there. And, you know, the list is just endless. What is it that you are attempting to do when you are taking somebody under your wing like Nico? Teach them what I know and get them on a path where they're safe and they can explore their own life that way, you know, but give them all the safe parameters so that they can at least get to the 
A minus level, and if they want to get to the A plus level, then they got to work hard and come up with their own thing. But they don't veer too far from, you know, every time Nico does a class at Blackbird or something, you know, he always tells them that the foundation, like I, like I have a methodology of balancing a drum kit. I can balance a drum kit with a drummer in a studio in 10 minutes without turning the monitors on. When you listen to it, it's like great. And it's all done by numbers. And you impart these things on those who are your your students will say absolutely like i was sitting with alec yesterday because he asked me a question about how do you de determine the balance between bass and kick drum and i sat and showed him for like 25 minutes how you do it it's interesting because i've done it so long it's just like second nature to me but when you think about it and you try to do it with an oral thought oral you know sound thought it's interesting when you think about it that way but I can do it and show somebody. And again, it's the same thing as I explained to Alec yesterday. It's hundreds of hours of just hearing it over and over. You just get it pounded into you. Because I remember when I first went to work at the Sound Factory and I was, the first project I was doing was the last Mamas and Papas album. And John Phillips and Denny Doherty be sitting in the studio and they go, yeah, but that second part is a little flat. And I'm listening going, what are they hearing? 20 years later, I know what they're hearing, but exactly. I then. Well, so the trajectory of your career what are the key points that did it just keep building on itself? Were there, were there, was there ever a struggle involved? No, I'm very fortunate. Believe me, from the time Heart Like a Wheel left the Sound Factory and we had two number one singles and a number one album, it just kept going like a rocket ship. I mean, you know, it was platinum record after platinum record after platinum record. I mean, you know, I have a hundred and some odd golden platinum records. A hundred. <laughs> it's like beyond gee maybe he was lucky you know yeah how do you feel in retrospect that you handled your own success <laughs> that's a good question i don't know i try to be a good person mm -hmm. i'm sure i've had moments like everyone but i'm caring i i do the best i can do you feel that you've you know you talk about the things that you impart on your students like nico what about the, the financial lessons that you learned? Do you also try to impart those those concepts to them? Do you, do you have sure. a financial sure. philosophy that you carry? Oh, yeah, I do. What's the overall theme of that, of that philosophy? Manage your money. Manage it. Manage it. Don't let somebody manage it for you. Manage it. It's interesting because Frank talked about people who have worked for him, who have taken him to the cleaners on the finances, and that... His advice was get somebody who loves you, who you know loves you, to, to manage your money. But then he also said, after that, he said, well, I give you that advice, but Billy Joel had one of his relatives, you know. Uh, and they ripped him clean. And they ripped him clean. So you've just kind of handled it, kept it close to well, yourself? Well, I've taken my hits, believe me, and through the business management world and all that bullshit too. <laughs> I've taken my hits, but I learned, you know, you learn. You, you, you live and learn. And fortunately, I've lived long enough. I mean, what, I'm going to be 80 years old next year. I've lived long enough to know that, you know, what's good and what's not and who you should trust and who you shouldn't. And fortunately, I've been very fortunate in the sense that the kind of Records I made are so timeless and so successful to this day that I make a lot of money still, you know, from royalties. So let's take a song like Betty Davis' Eyes. I mean, does that still produce legit royalties like it used to? Crazy. Wow. Crazy. 
And my friend who runs the the Universal Music Group royalty division for the whole company worldwide. He's a dear close friend. In fact, he and his wife and my wife went to Italy a couple of years ago together. He's Italian. His name is Enrico Petucci. And I said to him, maybe a year ago, I said, Enrico, what's happening? How do these things keep, they're doubling and then tripling and it's like crazy. And he goes, there's all these streaming services. A lot of them are tagged onto phones. So when you buy a phone, there's a streaming service to task. People don't even know they have it. They're paying for it. He said, and it's just, it's growing like gangbusters. So my royalties ostensibly in the last three or four years have tripled. Wow. That's, I'm really happy to hear that. I mean, that's my. And then it's sizable enough to where all these companies come after you to buy your royalty streams, you know? But oh, if yeah. I ta- if I take two or three million dollars now, the problem is this: if you if you sell your and unless you're Neil Young who sells it for fifty million, then you know you, you got a big enough amount that it, you could live off interests easily. But if I sold my royalties in publishing stream for say three million dollars, then you got to give half of that to the government, and then if you invest the other half in just like blue chip. interest, it doesn't spin off as much money as I get paid every six months. Yeah. So it's better just to hold on to it. Yeah. Play the long game. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Did it take you a while to learn and understand the business side of making records? Meaning royalties, you know, what do you charge? No, I've been very fortunate in my career. I've always had lawyers that were on my team that took very good care of that. My first lawyer was John Frankenheimer. He was brilliant. He did everything by the book and made great deals for me. And I'm very thankful for him being in my life. He was a mentor and part of my life for the first, I don't know, 15 years. He's the one that got Mel Simon to finance record one for $3 million when we built it, and it was great. And now David Helfant, who is my manager and lawyer, 
same kind of deal. You know, we just spent the last year and eight months making this Richie Furet record, which is about to come out, which is probably the best record I've made in 25 years. And it's an iconic country standards record, which is, has all these incredible songs on it. And he sounds like he's 30 years old, and it's just a brilliant record. And David pretty much put the whole deal together. During the pandemic, we made a deal for that album with BMG. And there's a lot of money guaranteed promotion behind it, and we're doing it in CD form and vinyl and streaming and... You know, we're going to premiere it at the Country Music Hall of Fame. It's a big record, and it'll be a big record because it probably will be one of his last records he'll make in his career. How do you go about finding managers and lawyers and the people that are on the periphery of what you do? In other words, how do you make a decision to have a particular individual... Represent you? Yeah. You know, it's pretty easy. They kind of fall into your life. Like David fell into mine about three years ago, and because I didn't have anybody for a long time, can't remember how it happened, but it happened. And he's a man of the times. I mean, he works twenty hours a day, and he's brilliant. He manages me. He manages the immediate family. He's very active. The guy goes out. Prior to the pandemic, he was out five nights a week listening to live music, and he's just a great guy, you know, who really knows the business. In fact, he's in the process of putting all my sound exchange stuff together because I never got paid on sound exchange on oh, all wow. those records I made. So there's this sizable amount of money laying laying there, getting ready to be snatched. Now, making a record today versus, let's say, in the heyday of analog recording, what mm -hmm. do you think of the record-making process today, the tools available to you? It's exactly the same. It's mm. exactly the same. The only difference is, is how you archive it. Instead of on tape, it's on a computer. But like I just did this Richie Furet record. Mm -hmm. We had six of the best musicians in Nashville. We cut 14 tracks in four days. Brilliant players. I picked them all because I knew who they all were. Tom Bukovic, who's one of the greatest guitar players I've ever worked with in Nashville or anywhere. Same thing with Chris Lusinger, who's Garth's acoustic player. And... Glenn Worf is an incredible bass player, and Steve Nathan, not only is he a great piano player, but as an organist too, B3 organ, he's known as the, uh, the professor, that's what he's called in Nashville. And then I brought the drummer from LA, Victor Andrizzo, because I'd worked a lot with Victor, and he's really an unusual drummer. And he came and worked, and everybody loved him, and then he went right back, and the Rascal Flats had him to a record, and... And Hank Jr. had him do a record, so he's, like, connected now in Nashville. But great drummer. But your approach is still the same. Yeah, six guys in a room. They're all looking at each other, and we cut them all live. With Nine of the 12 vocals were live vocals that he cut when we tracked it. And that, that's your preference, to get everything as live as possible? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, there's different methodologies for different types of records. This particular record, that was exactly how I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it like I used to do Linda's and James's records, where Russ and Lee and Waddy and everybody were sitting in the studio looking at each other. And James was singing in the booth, and we cut Handyman, you know, one take. Yeah. Yeah, the, the energy that comes from that is just undeniable. Yeah, you can't, you can't manufacture that, the interplay. Like, I'll give you an example. This album has 12 songs. They're all iconically known songs, and none of them are done like the originals. So imagine having to try to do that as well as come up with something that's great and have it sound great. And 
It does. It's incredible, you know, because the dynamics are all built in. Hmm. You don't have to overdub it. I didn't overdub anything on that record except, you know, harmonies, background vocals, and guest singers. And one guitar solo, no, two guitar solos I overdubbed. Otherwise, all live stuff. And the, what about the mixing process of this record? I mixed it here in my studio, here in L.A., which I mix everything here. Are you an in-the-box guy? Do you, are you a hybrid no. kind of guy? No, I'm not an in-the-box guy. Okay. Tell me about the influence of your peers on you. We talk about Frank. Uh, we were talking about Al earlier. Rest in peace, Al. Tell me about how others around you that were also successful, what impact did they have on you? Was it a competition? Was it a... You know, not really. I worked in a bubble for so many years, you know, either at the Sound Factory or Record One. And the only people that I was around in that period of time were the people that worked in the studio, which was pretty much Nico and Greg Ladani and me. We pretty much booked out Record One every day of the week. And that was it. I never really was around a lot of other engineers. I wasn't like Frank where I'd go from studio to studio in New York. I never did that. I was primarily in two studios, the Sound Factory and Record One. And I owned Record One, so I was the, like the main engineer. And then if Ladani came in with Henley, it was Ladani. And Nico came in with Steve Perry, it was Nico. Hmm. Now, what about the challenges in your career? I mean, it's has it been smooth sailing this entire time? Or have there been any particular points where things were a little rough? You know, when, you know, Napster was introduced uh, or record budget started to shrink. No, I was never affected by that kind of stuff. But when I sold record one in 1991, from about 91 to 95, I was kind of lost in a way because I didn't really know what I wanted to do or how I wanted to do it because I'd always worked in two studios. Mm. So now I was without a studio and without a home. And one of the things that Dave Hassinger always preached to me when I was growing up in his studio is that engineers that go from room to room aren't as good as one guy that stays in the same room. Because hmm. you know it like the back of your hand. So when you have to move around a lot, it's a lot harder. And he was right. After selling record one, what did you, what did you end up doing? I just sort of... Bounced around for a while, and then around 1996 is when I started getting into Pro Tools. And 97, I bought my first Pro Tools rig, and then I bought a Pro Control and set up a studio in my house. And then I've been in this house ever since. Way back then. Yeah. And what was your, your initial impressions of, of the whole DAW world? Well, when I first started working in Pro Tools, it was all 16-bit, and it was in the early days, 96, 97, somewhere in that area. And when somebody said to me, you could make a record on a computer, I was like, what? <laughs> and I, even had a, I even had a 3M2 track that I'd completely rebuilt and set up because I couldn't mix to a, a computer. So I, I used to mix to that quarter-inch 15 IPS Dolby S2 track that I had. And I had that for probably till... 2004 or five when I finally gave that up and I built a whole Pro Tools mix rig. So I have two rigs. I have an HDX system that I record on and then I have a HD native system that I use just two channels of to mix into 192. And so you've been in this house since that time and obviously yeah. your Pro Tools rigs have morphed Evolved. and changed. Yeah. And the setup <laughs> well, has changed. Avid came to me and asked me if I would help them design the HD system. 
So they brought engineers down from, from San Bruno and we, we tried all these different things. And they had a studio in Burbank that I'd go over and I'd listen to this and go, no, that sucks. And we went through all this stuff. And then they had me develop the Icon consoles with them, which were these, like I have a D command and that's, um, I don't like the new S series because they're too t tiny, little tiny knobs. They, they're more of like a, a film console to me because they go down four layers. And, and I think that's who they were trying to capture anyway. But I helped them design this. And I said to them, because I had a pro control, and I said, if you really want to design a console, you can't have a pro control like I have and lift it up with one hand. <laughs> That's not a console. So then they started building the D commands. And I mean, you know, look at the size of this D command. Yeah. And I'm not even sure do they, if they still make the D command. No, they don't. But there's a huge aftermarket for it now. A lot of people want them. Yeah, because the, the, the whole S thing is... Those things are not only expensive, but as you said, everything's very small. Yeah, it's just not like a recording console. So the only thing I've had to do to the D command was I had to have the power supplies rebuilt, which was a couple of thousand dollars, and that's it. I haven't had to do a thing. What would you do if you were starting fresh today, like your assistant, as far as career trajectory? I'd go into real estate. <laughs> <laughs> And let, let's break that down. Do you just not feel that for somebody starting out, it's not as lucrative? No, I was joking. No. What would I do? The same thing that my little man here, Alec, is doing. Alex, he goes and goes to Blackbird in Nashville and takes that course. Yeah. So when I was in Nashville recording Richie's tracks, I did a, a seminar for John McBride in the Blackbird Studios in this school, which I do every time I'm there, because I like to give back as much as I can. And Alec was one of the students. So then when Miguel, my assistant, who went back to Puerto Rico to make Latin records, was leaving, I called up the guy who runs Blackbird, Mark Rubel, and I said, Mark, I'm looking for a new assistant. You got any suggestions? He said, wow, funny you should mention that. One of the kids that was in your class graduated and has moved back to California why don't I contact him? So he contacted Alec, and Alec was up in Paso Robles, and he moved down here, and he's been with me for how long now? Almost a year. Almost a year. Wow. Well, congrats. Congrats on finding, yeah. a, finding a solid uh, assistant. What is it you look for in someone like Alec? Well, I have my, my priorities have changed dramatically in the last five years in terms of if I'm going to take on an assistant, they have to have a degree in music. They have to have a knowledge of Pro Tools and Logic and all the DAW stuff mm -hmm. and really a background in that. After that, I don't care because I'll teach them. But that's got to be the starting point. And why the degree in music? Because they understand everything music-wise. You know, you mm -hmm. don't have to have sidebar conversations with people about why the third works better than the fifth or what is a third and what is a fifth. They know. I mean, it's all, the language is already there. So that part has to be in place because otherwise it's just too much stuff to think about, you know. How long do you typically have an assistant for? It varies. It varies. Okay, Brandon was the one before Miguel. Brandon was with me four years. Miguel was with me three and a half, almost four years. Uh-huh. And Alec has been with me a year now. And ideally... How long will Alec be with you? Till he gets it. Till he gets it. <laughs> and when when do you know that? You know, I can tell, but typically it's three to five years is the usual span where they can go out and go to work without any problem. 
looking back on your career, are there any things that you wish you could do over any part of it? How about my first two marriages? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about that. That's a, you know, a a work life balance issue. I'm, I'm assuming. No, I just did silly things. You know, I, I couldn't describe it any better. I okay. Did silly things. I married the playmate of the year. That was my first wife. Okay. Um, you know, you just who knows. I just can remember Steve Wax, who was the head of promotion for Electra Asylum, taking me into the broom closet at Record One and going, "Don't even think about marrying this girl." <laughs> <laughs> so you know, that's a redo if I could. Yeah. Was family life and work life hard to balance in your time? You know, over the last. 20 or 30 years? Yes and no. In the beginning, yes. With my first two wives, it was really hard. With my wife now, who I've been with for like 13 or 14 years, no. Yeah. She gets it. I get it. She's in the PR business. She's very successful. She does her thing. I do my thing. And we spend time together. And it doesn't matter how much time we spend together. It's always fun. We have a house in Lake Tahoe. This year, we usually go up at Christmas. This year, we went up in the middle of December, and usually we stay till like the 1st or 2nd of January. Mm-hmm. We stayed a month because of COVID. It was raging in L.A., so we stayed in Tahoe, where the cases were seven. Yeah. And we were with each other all day, every day. We didn't go anywhere. We just hung out, you know, and it was easy. What do you think it takes for a partner to work with somebody who's a recording professional? What is it that your current wife has that makes it work? Is it just an understanding? I don't think it's any more difficult than any other industry. I think my wife is incredibly tolerant of my golf because I oh. play golf all the time, you know, weekends. And, you know, she's alone all weekend sometimes. Like I just played last weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in a tournament. That's probably the hardest part for her. The business part, she loves music. Her office is in Brentwood. She pays like $5,000 a month for the office in Brentwood on the ninth floor of a big office building. Beautiful office corner, looks over all of West LA. And and she spent probably a total of eight hours in that in the last year and a half. Mm. And uh, she's upstairs in the office upstairs. <laughs> so she comes down and listens to stuff and she loves hearing all what I'm working on. And that part's great. Musically, what what kind of music do you prefer to work on? Good music. That's what I prefer to work on, good music. I don't care if it's hip-hop. I don't care if it's country. I don't care what it is as long as it's good. And I can do any of them. And what makes good music to you? Good songs. Good songs and good artists. And when you mix something, do you typically only mix the things that you produce or record? Or do you do mixing for other people? I haven't for years. A, nobody's asked me, <laughs> but B, my time is pretty consumed with me just doing what I'm working on. Mm. Do you think as as you get older, do you ever face any kind of pushback from younger artists who, who say, well, I don't know, there's too much of an age gap between us. How is this going to work? Or do, do you think it's different? I, I just, uh, last year I worked with this girl, Brooke Butler. She was 16. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to be 80 next year. Yeah. Nobody relates to me on that level. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? It's just not in my DNA. I mean, I'm like going to be forever 20. So, and not because I want to, it's just me. That's just my, Yeah. they don't have any problem relating to me. I'm not in the grandpa mode, you know? Yeah. 
And I've always loved the cutting edge, so I'm always up on all the technology and always up on all the music. And I just love it, you know? Yeah. So it's like... You know you don't look 80. You know that. Yeah. I'm very fortunate. I have great genetics. Yeah. I'll be 80 next year. Born in 42. You know, and it's it's interesting. I, I'm on the impre impression that people who are older in the recording industry... Like you don't, you don't seem to see the same age discrimination that you would maybe in other industries, like in the tech industry. It seems because I mean, look at Al. Well, no, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, yeah. But then there is, to, is that? But then there is, though. You know, I mean. Yeah, and then you we have examples like Al, who is ninety one. Didn't he look great though? Oh man, he did look great. Yeah, I, I just I feel a pretty heavy heart over that whole thing. I feel for not only his wife, but the those closest to him. You know, like Steve Jenowick, who worked with him for years, and well, Nico was as close to him as anybody. But Nico's like my kid, so I talked to Nico yesterday, and Nico was on his way over to help his wife. You know, and it's sad, but it you know ninety one. Come on, man, the age average today is seventy one. So yeah. he got an extra twenty. That's a, that's a pretty good run. Yeah. Yeah, I went to breakfast with him and Nico and I about oh a year ago, and I just posted it on my Facebook page with my condolences and my saying of what happened, and and the picture is great because we're all sitting there having breakfast. It's fun. Overall, what do you think has been the key to your success in a nutshell? Hard work, man. Yeah. Hours. When I think about the Sound Factory days, I probably did... I'd show up at eight in the morning and leave at one in the morning. Sometimes I'd fall asleep on the couch and the cleaning lady would wake me up. Mm. And I'd do that seven days a week. I can remember Terry, the studio manager, calling me at home on a Sunday and I'd answer the phone and go, Sound Factory, she'd go, Val, you're at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you're busy, Val, and I don't want to keep you, but I really appreciate your time. You've been very generous. And do you maintain a website? Yes, I do, valgaray.com. I'll include that, that link in the show notes. Great. And it's, it's been Great. a pleasure speaking with you. All right, you too. And check out Richie Furet's record when it comes out. It's called In the Country. I will. Nice speaking to you, Val. Cheers. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Val Garay here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. If you like the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave a positive review. A small novel about your love of the show would be ideal, but hey, you know, we all don't have that kind of time. So if you just want to leave a five-star review, that would be fantastic, and it definitely helps out the show. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Blow on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his lovely voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called 
audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 